Hello, my name is Danielle DeVoe, and you are listening to Unsettling Trends on Midtown Radio. This week is all about communities and some of the cultural shifts that we're seeing in our communities. We're returning to unsettling trends, but we're also turning the rhetoric of unsettling trends on its head. We're thinking about some of the ways that communities can use interventions in culture to engage in some productive unsettlings or maybe some reimaginings of the way we want our communities to be. So we're going to have a conversation with Melissa Bowman, local community advocate and founder of the Citified Substack about some of the great changes or unsettling changes that she's seeing in our local communities. We're also going to catch up with Kirsty Robertson, who is an associate professor and the director of Museum and Curatorial Studies at Western University, to talk about some of the ways that our cultural institutions are having to shift and change, particularly during and in the aftermath of the global pandemic, as well as the ways that cultural institutions can be used to unsettle some of our uh, ways that we imagine our cultural histories. But first, we're going to hear uh, a couple of segments from Stories from Land Back Camp, which was a segment produced by Melissa Bowman. And we're going to hear from Amy Smoke, one of the organizers of Land Back Camp, about some of the reasons that they returned to Willow River Park and decided to unsettle it by setting up a camp. You're listening to stories from Land Back Camp, shared by Amy Smoke. Sego, so aguego, Amy Smoke, younger, it's Ganyamke Higani'i. I am Amy Smoke. I'm Mohawk Nation Turtle Clan from the Six Nations of the Grand River, and I've lived in KW my entire life. And I'm currently the co founder and co organizer of OC Ganhum Hadaje Land Back Camp. In the beginning there, we were we were filming a lot and going live a lot. But a lot of the other surprising things that we don't film and people weren't catching were the connections that the Indigenous youth and, and Two-Spirit youth were making here on the land um, when they learned uh, a word in their language. Some of the youth made drums for the very first time and um, watching them bring those to life singing and and a mother of an indigenous youth here had never sung in a circle before had never played a drum before that was an amazing moment and certainly not one i pull out my phone and put on on social media so there are you know countless moments of the day where the indigenous youth or or two-spirit or queer youth here are able to connect with themselves, their identity, and the land in such beautiful ways that they had never previously had before. So prior to National Indigenous Pay, during during uh, COVID, we were um, in council with a number of other community members in the Black community as well in Kitchener-Waterloo, and just becoming more and more frustrated and um, hurt and um, just disappointed in the ways in which we were seeing the the you know hands of uh, or the death at the hands of police um the inequities in our health systems we're um you know marginalized folks that don't have great access to health care the way that the virus is spreading throughout our communities and um we decided to take up some space for national indigenous people day raise the teepee be here be aware of um what's going on in the world and put that message out there. We arrived the June 20th, the night before um, Indigenous People Day and um, put up the teepee and woke up here for a sunrise ceremony on the June 21st. 
some of the challenges everyday racism 24 hours a day um, and we do have folks here awake 24 hours a day we have night watch crew we have settler accomplices who um, shoulder that work for us in educating folks who demand um, the right to be heard in in this space um, and also given the you know that it is a pandemic we are quite closely quarantined together it's visibly a circle space and folks still um, feel the need to enter they feel entitled enough to enter the spaces so we have folks that are really really aware of what's going on around us they're able to stop people at the edge um, remind folks that they're not wearing a mask and also that this is not a settler education space. We do have a flyer that we hand out to folks and signs were provided by the city that um, circled the camp. And it does indicate that we are gathered here peacefully and out of respect, if you're uninvited, that please do not approach. Um, we do often see people get a little upset by that last line and turn away quite angrily. They do feel that they deserve to speak to an indigenous person in the moment and then they'd like to talk about residential schools or something um, that brings up trauma for most of the folks here. Um, that is not our job here. We don't get paid to educate anybody. There are local indigenous organizations that folks can Google and access information on the history, the true history of the space we call Canada. For us to educate folks, it takes the accountability of learning off of the settler. Go home and tell a friend what you learned about Land Back Camp. Tell your family spread that on we didn't all learn the true history of Canada in the curriculum in our in our education system so telling folks about what people learn here is amazing that was Amy Smoke talking about land back camp which was a uh, camp set up on the island in uh, the middle of Willow River Park during the pandemic in 2020 and 2021 and that camp really was successful at getting uh, a number of Indigenous conversations and Indigenous issues into uh, media and onto uh, various political agendas in the region. So it was a really uh, successful uh, project. And our documentation of that project was conducted by Melissa Bowman, one of our uh, segment producers with Midtown Radio, and it's my conversation with Melissa Bowman from around that time that we turn to next, uh, where we are going to think a bit more about some of the other unsettlings that we see in our communities and some of the productive unsettlings that we're seeing uh, as we saw with Land Back Camp. My name is Danielle DeVoe and you're listening to Unsettling Trends on Midtown Radio. I am chatting today with Melissa Bowman, an active member of the community in Kitchener, Ontario. Melissa, thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks, Danielle. And could you just describe some of the work that you do in the community? Sure. I mean, I do work part-time as a childcare teacher, but a lot of the stuff I do is volunteer and there's 
no shortage of things to be involved in in this region, and I've found myself involved in many of them. So housing has been a real interest for me lately. So I'm a co-founder of WRYMB, which is Waterloo Region Yes in My Backyard. I'm involved with Union Sustainable Development Cooperative, which is looking at ways to bring more affordable housing into the region as well. I do a lot of neighborhood type things with the Victoria Park Neighborhood Association and the Downtown Neighborhood Alliance. I do some stuff with Midtown Radio and CKMS Radio as well. Those are a few of the things anyways. So something that I've been looking at over this series has been the idea of unsettling trends and that we're facing a lot of really problematic shifts in climate or in housing affordability. But then also there are some unsettlings that are kind of productive. And I think about the land back camp taking back on the little island in Victoria Park and sort of saying, you know, this is a traditional land and Indigenous people need to have better access to it. So it was unsettling who's allowed to use land and in what ways at what times. And so I thought, you know, there's these like useful unsettlings that we see happening. And I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some things that you see happening in the community that are maybe unsettling traditional ways that we've been doing things, but that are actually building a better community. Sure. I think for sure you've touched on a major one with Land Back Camp. We had the um, March in Solidarity for Black Lives. It feels to me like there's more interest in local democracy issues and that people are feeling that they have a right to be a part of these conversations and are finding ways to insert themselves into these conversations. Whereas it feels like even a few years ago, there was a a feeling, at least in the circles I'm a part of, that decisions are just made at the political level and we don't necessarily have much ability to change the course of any particular decision. I feel like more people are saying, no, I think there is room for us in this conversation and that we will be able to affect some sort of change. So I think those protests, uh, Land Back Camp, those are some great examples of that. But even just having people reach out to me and, and saying, like, how do I write a letter to a, a counselor? Or how do I register to speak as a delegation in front of council? It seems like people are trying to take a more active role in engaging with the government at some level. So as somebody who's very interested in local politics, this excites me a lot. So I've been really yeah, happy to see that type of thing. I was reading something recently, too, where uh, the mayor of Waterloo, Dave Jaworski, he said something about housing specifically. He was speaking about a new development that was being proposed. And he said what used to be like outright opposition to any changes in a neighborhood, any new development. He's seen a shift over over the years where it's there is an understanding that development is needed in some way. And now the conversation is less about let's just and to this development in any form to can we participate in the discussion around what that might look like. Now, some of those conversations to me can still be problematic because they can end up reducing uh, how many people end up in a new development and that type of thing. But the fact that there is this realization that development and housing is needed in a community, I think that's, that's a shift in the right direction anyways. 
Yeah. And I actually, I remember taking a political science course in my undergraduate degree and the political science professor talking about, you know, municipal politics often um, is ignored in terms of people's attitudes about what matters, you know, our, our national government matters, our provincial government matters, but people often overlook municipal government, even though it actually has the biggest impact on our daily lives and can really change our experiences of our communities so dramatically. And I you know, I feel like in Kitchener-Waterloo, we do actually have a government body that is very interested in engaging the public. It feels like uh, as a member of the public, I'm being listened to. And do you think that that is, is something unique or do you feel like that has been an, another shift in how public governance is happening in our community? Just recently, I was looking at the uh, Waterloo Region Wellbeing Report, and it did seem to say that in our region that we do tend to have good levels of engagement and uh, respect for that process with our local government. So I think it seemed to suggest that, yes, there is that interest and connection to our, our local levels of government. And the one thing that stood out to me was it said Kitchener specifically rated the highest in all of the regions, municipalities, and townships for that. And that's the area that I'm most interested in. I live in Kitchener, uh, work in Kitchener. That's, you know, where my passion is. Uh, so to some degree it, in very much with my own experience, but it looks like that is also the experience of many others. And I couldn't agree more that for me, it seems like the local level, what's happening at the region and at the city level are really what impacts our day-to-day -day experience of just existing in our own neighborhoods, in, in our work areas and that type of thing. So that is where I'm very interested in and I'm glad to see that others are also starting to, to see that as well. So some people probably are listening to this and say, well, but I don't feel like my voice is heard and I don't feel like my interests are being taken care of or considered by those in, say, positions of, of power, although municipal councillors would probably say they don't have a huge amount of power. So if someone's listening to this, if you can even think back to, I don't know if there was a time when Melissa Bowman wasn't as involved in public life as she is now, you know, what are the first steps to being able to either engage with your community or start to feel like your voice is being heard? So there's a few things that come to mind for that. The one is, again, in that Wellbeing Waterloo report, it was saying that the people who felt uh, most disengaged tend to be people living in the lower income levels, people with disabilities, people who are racialized. So there is clearly some demographics that align with whether we are engaged or not. So I'm excited that the city of Kitchener at least is uh, looking, they are now collecting demographic information from all of their engagement processes so they can at least start to understand who they're engaging with often and who they are not. So one example for me that stands out because I am so interested in housing is who do we most often hear about when say a new affordable housing development is proposed in a neighborhood and it's very often is just homeowners, which of course their voice needs to be included. But I'm also interested in how do we hear from people who rent? How do we hear from people who might move into that development if it is uh, built? Or just people who are generally uh, wanting to see more housing in, in the city that their voices may not be part of the conversation as much as the direct 
homeowners in, in a specific area. So yes, I have not always been interested in local politics. It only came up actually through my neighborhood work. So I've always, I've long been somebody who's been interested in engaging in different ways. For many years, it was at the neighborhood level. Um, I started out at Williamsburg Community Association when that was first becoming its own entity. So that was kind of exciting and my first dipping my toes into the water of neighborhood work. And that really started the ball rolling, I guess. So I think for me, it was what am I most interested in? And I had just moved into that neighborhood out in Williamsburg when I joined that association and was feeling like, oh, how do I meet other people? What's interesting to my neighbors, that type of thing. So it felt like a way to connect. It was an area of interest for me. And through that, I started meeting and hearing about other people doing really cool things and really it just kind of snowballed. So I think it's finding that issue that is something that you're passionate about, something that maybe impacts your life directly starting there. And I think you'll find that generally opens up a whole new world of other ways to get involved as well. This issue of the housing and who is consulted, I find so interesting because similarly on, on my street, an apartment building was built a few years ago. As homeowners, we received a letter in the mail that explained, you know, there's this zoning application and this is the information session. And if you have any questions or concerns um, and, you know, and on our street, there's an apartment building beside me. So all renters. So those individuals wouldn't get that letter. Only the owners of the building would get that letter. And then there were various other buildings that were also formerly single family homes, but now rental. And so similarly, the people who are being called to engage in the process, if they are homeowners, then that's not most people in the community. And the radius of who had to be consulted was also fairly small. And so I, I wonder, you're talking about how, you know, how the, the system seems to only engage certain types of people. And it's because of the way that public engagement is structured, that there are certain ways that we do public engagement to be able to check the public engagement box. And do you see that being disrupted a little bit in terms of how people in Kitchener are starting to think about what it means to engage the public? For sure. I think one of the things I found fascinating, I was reading census data because this is now a thing I do that I'm interested <laughs> in local politics. Um, and it was saying for, for the area that I'm in, kind of in and around Victoria Park, it was saying that more people live in non-single detached housing. So some form of multi family, housing, apartments, duplexes, that type of thing. And I found that fascinating because, again, what I'm seeing uh, as far as feedback and engagement, it tends to be homeowners. So I think I was left with the impression that that was the majority of people in the neighborhood, but the census data suggests otherwise. So I just found that fascinating. And I think there is this realization that we aren't engaging with the vast spectrum of the people in our community that we could. So I think this step, like I mentioned before, that Kitchener is taking with even just collecting the data is a great first step. And then what do you do with that data? I know around development stuff that the city of Kitchener, again, has hosted some feedback sessions and again, likely mostly homeowners at that, but I think they were a little more intentional about who to include in that conversation. And out of that meeting came some great ideas about having some videos, some simple videos to explain some of the planning processes that the city goes through that can be easily shared on social media. The new signs that are going up when a development is proposed is much more visual and just 
easier to understand. So they might have QR codes eventually, so people can just pull up information on their phone, that type of thing. And they're also expanding who they're sending those, those letters to, as you said, because only a certain component of a neighborhood is receiving that. So I think there are some shifts in that happening. There's at least the realization it needs to happen. And then this discussion about how best to make that actually happen. So how are some of the organizations that you're involved with looking at this and and thinking about solutions to this problem? Yeah, there's so many uh, facets to this conversation. And I feel like I'm only just learning about many of them. So as I said, I'm a co-founder of WRMB Waterloo Region, Yes in My Backyard, where we're trying to help bring awareness to some of these issues and also find a place for voices that may not be included in the conversations up to this point, have those as options as well. But yeah, there's just so, so many issues with it. So I feel like WRUMB is really trying to bring awareness and educating folks about why we need to be concerned about this. And I think actually it's really been a problem as far as affordability for a long time, but it's just expanding who it's impacting now. So uh, if you see housing on a spectrum of the social housing, um, supportive housing, that type of thing, kind of on the left up to market rate, single detached housing, it is impacting more and more closely to the right. And so most of the middle class now is, is being impacted by this. So I think that's why we're hearing even more about it. But people who were falling into that left side of the spectrum have long been saying this is, is problematic. Folks like those who are with Social Development Center of Waterloo Region, they have long been doing um, this work, working with people uh, with lived experience of poverty and in precarious housing situations. And I think that's another shift that we're really seeing is this recognition that we need to focus our attention on those with lived experience because they can bring so much to the table. They really know what is happening and have great ideas about how to move forward on some of this, as opposed to just having like a group of people who may be experts in certain fields, but may not have that lived experience. So um, I think they're doing great work. They've got an oral history project that's worth looking into and they're uh, mapping displacement. So when people used to be able to rent, but then they've been evicted for various reasons, they're keeping track of that and trying to tell those stories. So I think that's really important. And then we have great things like Creative Ideas Union Sustainable Development Cooperative is doing some neat things, partnering with Reception House trying to figure out ways to bring more affordable housing sort of at an individual, a smaller scale. But I think we need, you know, it's an all hands on deck situation right now. And we need all those creative approaches and people bringing their own experience to help affect change on on this. So how do you envision Kitchener improving over the next 10 years? If you could, if you were in charge of our future direction for 10 years, what would be the big things that we could do to really have a significant impact in Kitchener as a livable city, as as a great place to live, as a welcoming place, as a more equitable place? Lots of things. So 
I would jokingly say ban cars, and, and I don't mean that exactly, but I think we need to plan for a city that is not as car focused as it is now. We saw some great things with the region of Waterloo trying something new in the middle of COVID pandemic last year with uh, the temporary bike lanes. I know they were not everybody's favorite thing, but I love the fact that we're willing to try things and learn from that and see how we can implement things based on what we've learned from that. So I think active transportation needs to be key as we move forward. If we take seriously that we're in a climate emergency, then I think that's one of the key aspects. I think we really need to build up. Again, I know it's not everybody's favorite thing to see our community getting taller and more dense, but I think as far as protecting the countryside line and ensuring, you know, an environmentally sustainable future, we need to not keep building out. We need to make room for people by growing up would be two of the main things for me. Yeah, so lots more infill. I would love to see, yeah, that mixed use development stuff happening. I have a lot of ideas, but probably not enough time to get through it. Yeah, just this focus on ensuring that people whose voices have been intentionally left out of conversations up to this point have more say. Like, I'm very excited about some of the new positions that are happening at, at the city of Waterloo and the city of Kitchener around equity and justice and anti-racism work. So those would be some of the main ones, but I'd be happy to have coffee with anybody and discuss more of my <laughs> vision sometime if you'd like to hear the rest of it. If them. any, if any mayors are listening, Melissa Bowman is prepared to advise. <laughs> exactly. So you understand, you see the problems in our municipalities. You are, are critical of many things, but you are a very positive person. I think anyone who knows you would say, you yeah, Melissa Bowman's really a glass half full kind of person. Um, so, and, and, you know, you did your great project in 2019 of your 365 of good and just like really documenting great things that people are doing and positive things. So in the face of really understanding how significant the challenges are, how, how do you stay optimistic? It's a great question. I think a lot of it for me is just seeing how many people are willing to put in the, the work to make it happen. Um, that is really what it comes down to. I think I would lose all hope for a lot of these issues if I didn't constantly see the evidence of so many people coming together and trying to come up with new solutions, having those conversations, coming up with actions that they're willing to try. And, and if that doesn't work, okay, back to the drawing table and try to come up with something more. I'm really starting to see this focus on um, cross collaboration type of things where an organization may have started with its own mandate, but it hears of another organization and they think, hey, we could probably do even better work if we combine some of our efforts. Um, so for me, it honestly just comes down to the people are doing the work. And the more I get involved in things, the more people I am seeing doing this. And it's hard not to come away energize when you see the passion that people bring to these um, projects and the things that they want to see changed. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Melissa. Thank you. That was my conversation with Melissa Bowman, community volunteer and many other things in the city of Kitchener. Follow her on Twitter at m2bowman.
Up next is my interview with Kirsty Robertson, who is the Director of Museum and Curatorial Studies at Western University. Dr. Robertson has thought a lot about how our cultural institutions need to shift uh, in terms of changing who is able to engage with those institutions and where people can engage with those institutions, as well as the subject matter that should be represented in our art museums. Our conversation took place during the pandemic, when a lot of cultural institutions were really struggling to come to terms with how they could continue to do their work and how they could continue to unsettle some of our experiences of art and culture and the kinds of things that we see in museums. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your research and how it relates to museums. Yeah, I have two main projects. So in the first one, I look at the intertwined histories of museums and activism. And I'm really interested in why museums are such important targets and how they both helped and hindered social movements. And in the second project, I work with a group of scientists and artists in an interdisciplinary collaboration called the Synthetic Collective. And we work to map and visualize plastics pollution in the Great Lakes region. And this has connected to museums through a project that we're doing right now. It's an exhibition called Plastic Heart Surface All the Way Through. And one of our guiding questions is, is it possible to curate a zero carbon exhibition? And we had to make a number of curatorial decisions to answer that question. So in my research, I'm interested in how museums respond to contention. And then I'm also interested in learning from that and putting it into practice through curating. I mean, it's, it's timely, the topic, because you're bringing in a lot of environmental criticism, but also art institution criticism. But museums during COVID have been doing really interesting work, increasingly trying to diversify their collections, trying to shift power dynamics in terms of whose voices are being represented. And then COVID-19 hit, and that's been a real challenge for art institutions. So how do you think that the landscape of museums has maybe shifted over the past year? And, and what does this mean for museums going forward in terms of the agility that they've had to show? Yeah, so the pandemic, I would say, on the whole, has not been good for museums. Um, museums rely on people coming to their institutions. That's what keeps them lively, and it's what keeps them alive, really. So at the start of the pandemic, there were lots of things going on, like the Getty Museum Challenge, I think. People would mimic famous paintings by dressing up in items that they just had lying around. I did one. Maybe you did too. Uh, some of them were really great and some of them were actually super educational. So there was an artist in the UK, he's actually an opera singer named Peter Brathwaite. And he did a ton of research to find uh, many works that were portraits of black men. And he would then create these through the Getty Museum Challenge. But it was a way of drawing attention to a kind of portraiture that's not often shown in general. And then bringing together all of these portraits of Black men that hadn't been shown together. So I think a lot of people around the world actually ended up learning a lot from his project, which was kind of fun and interesting. And he's really creative in the kinds of things that he does. But at the 
same time, it had this really impactful presence as a project that he did. So those things were fun. But at the same time, museums were really struggling. Like I can't underestimate that. I don't have the numbers for Canada, but in the U.S., the American Alliance of Museums found that 44% of museums had initiated furloughs or layoffs as a direct result of the pandemic. So a lot of people lost their jobs, but it's also, if you dig down into those numbers, it's the kinds of jobs that were lost as well. So a lot of those were what we call front of house workers, people like security, the people who take your tickets. And in the States at least, those jobs are held primarily by people of color. So outside of those positions, it also looks like anecdotally, the departments that have been most affected are departments like educational departments. And there's a whole history here that I won't go into, but educational departments translate collections for multiple audiences. So the things that you mentioned, like the ways that museums are sort of confronting their pasts and thinking about how to deal with their collections. It's often educational departments that do the work of presenting those reckonings to the public. So we'll see how this unfolds over the next few years, but I would say in general, the pandemic has had a negative impact on museums and we'll be struggling with the outcome of that for a long time. So, I mean, in general, in digital culture, popular culture, we have this idea that it's a commercial place, but people also feel like it's still somewhat democratic. You know, anyone can participate in digital culture and a diverse number of voices can be represented in digital culture. But it sounds like, you know, there was a bit of a gesture towards that in terms of people's engagement with putting museum related content online. But in reality, the work that museums were already doing to try and diversify understandings of their collections, that was what was most disrupted in the pandemic. That's what kind of like had the brakes put on to a certain extent. And so it sounds like there's going to be a lot to make up for, for museums at a time when they're already kind of struggling. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So as a museum studies professor, I think I had access to things during the pandemic that I maybe wouldn't have had access to normally. So conferences that went online instead of being in person or talks that maybe would have filled up really quickly, but because they were online, you could access it that way. So for me, I think I sort of benefited from that, but that is tied in with the privilege of being a professor with access to internet and knowing these things were happening. And it is not mutually exclusive, but definitely somewhat disconnected from the work that was being done on the ground by people to open up museums to audiences that hadn't been imagined as a part of that museum previously. And over the last like decade, maybe so much work was done in those spheres to reimagine museums entirely. I don't think that's been wiped out, but I think it has been made more difficult just as museums are sort of struggling to even stay open or struggling to like bring people in. 
yeah, of course, the entire part of the museum that the public sees is something that's relatively out of the scope of what is possible during a pandemic, like going to a museum and being with people in a museum is maybe not something that's safe in the current pandemic. So uh, museums have often had to adapt to that and had to rethink how people can be with things in the museum and with people in the museum. Mm -hmm. And we are right now living in a context where governments have acknowledged that debt is not a bad thing and they need to spend, spend, spend. And alongside that, you know, in Ontario, there has been investment in arts institutions. Many institutions got more funding related to the pandemic than they ordinarily do in terms of their operating funds. There have been artist recovery grants and arts institution recoveries um, and, and loans, no interest loans and these types of things. So it seems like even in a crisis, somehow, you know, we're often worried that arts institutions will be the first things to be cut, that people will say, well, art and culture, that's a luxury. And what we really need to worry about are healthcare and other types of businesses. But so far, we haven't seen arts institutions being left behind in the pandemic. But there will come a day when there will be a time of reckoning related to government budgets. So what is the argument that we need to make to remind people of how important art and culture are to our everyday lives and sort of Canadian public culture and society. It's become a bit of a cliche, I think, but I still think it's essential that when we were all in lockdown, people turned to the arts. Like there's no way around that. We talk about the Getty Museum project. We talk about the way people turn to like making things and watching things on Netflix and, you know, even watching like Bob Ross learn to paint videos and so on. All of those things are connected to just the vitality of art in our lives and the arts in our lives. It just seems that they are so essential that once you start to define the myriad ways in which they are essential, you sort of lose the big picture. It's more just the arts are essential. I hope that reckoning does not ruin some of the fragile structures that are still in place. Mm -hmm. And so this entire series has been broadly framed around unsettling trends and, and thinking about trends as sort of rhetorical devices in, in as much as they are representations of real data. And some unsettlings are really necessary. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that museums are being unsettled now. So I'll talk about two things. One is of great interest to me personally, and that is that a number of museums are thinking about their carbon footprints. So these are large museums. They're big buildings. They're often like beautiful architecture but architecture in ways that are not particularly ecologically efficient. So a number of large museum buildings are undergoing projects to make them more sustainable over time. But I'm more interested in like nitty gritty DIY solutions, like just reusing furniture and movable walls or like finding alternatives to vinyl labeling. So the pandemic, I think, has really shown us how these kinds of things are not radical or cutting edge, but they are things that can just be implemented quite easily and then have a larger impact over time. 
So that's one thing that I'm interested in that is unsettling museums because museums have for so long privileged aesthetic curatorial paradigm over one that takes waste into account. A bigger trend that is unsettling is one we've sort of discussed a tiny bit, but museums are having to confront their past. So these are large authoritative museums again. A lot of them have collections that were amassed under duress. And while some of these objects were acquired legally or ethically, this is not the case for many other artifacts in collections that were stolen or looted and then often put on display as examples of colonial conquest. So one thing that's in the news right now is the case of the Benin bronzes. You might have heard of this. If anyone's interested, I highly recommend Dan Hicks's book, The Brutish Museum. But this is a collection of thousands of sacred objects. Some of them are made of bronze, but not all of them. And they were stolen by British troops when British troops sacked Benin City in 1897, and it's in present-day Nigeria. So it was an extremely violent looting, and the objects were gathered, stolen, redistributed. They've ended up in private collections and museums almost entirely outside of Nigeria. And now there is great pressure to return them, and some museums, like the British Museum, are refusing. They're just not budging to pressure. But increasingly other museums, so the University of Aberdeen announced that they were going to return a Benin bronze that was in their collection. And when asked why, they clearly stated that it had been acquired in a manner that was extremely immoral. So this is a huge unsettling in museums, but I need to make it clear that this is not something that has occurred overnight. They're the result of decades and sometimes centuries of negotiation on restitution. So as soon as objects or belongings were taken, people were trying to get them back. And it's only now, like a century later, that institutions are starting to listen and starting to think about ways to return things. So in Canada, in the spring of 2021, the largest collection of Inuit art opened in Winnipeg. And that was framed from the perspective of the museum that holds that collection as being part of the reconciliation process, that this is a way to show how multifaceted Inuit culture and Inuit art can be and to show that to a wide audience in the South. And the artists who participate in it also are talking about the artwork in that way. But there's also criticism because that artwork is now not being held in Inuit territory, you know, so there's a lack of this size and caliber of cultural institution in the place where the art originates from. And so there are still ongoing tensions in, in how we decide to weigh, you know, reconciliation or education or, you know, or sort of public acknowledgement or promotion of art practices versus a culture's autonomous ability to maintain control over that artwork. And I wonder if you had any thoughts about that particular situation or the way it relates to some of the other unsettlings that you've been looking at. 
So um, Kama York is the name of the gallery at the Winnipeg Art Gallery. And what's important and interesting about that space is it is an Inuit-led space. So when we talk about the Benin bronzes at the British Museum, they are held in a museum that has nothing to do with Nigeria. It really has the perspective of a colonial encounter and the curating there, even though they address the looting of Benin City, it cannot account for the multiple fractures that that looting and theft and violence has exacted over the century plus that it took place. So Kama York at the Winnipeg Art Gallery is in my opinion, trying to do something very different where space has been given for an Inuit-led project that interprets belongings and artworks from Inuit culture from an Inuit perspective. And so people visiting that gallery will be able to learn not just about the objects that are held in the gallery, but also about the ways of knowing, the systems of belonging, and just the importance that art has in the culture from an Inuit perspective. So for me, the existence of Kamayork is distinct from the need to have display spaces in the North. And it's also distinct from the ways that Inuit art tends to be showcased in the South, uh, which would be in a sort of fairly traditional gallery setting. So I would say that what is happening at the Winnipeg Art Gallery is actually an example of how museums can move forward, taking into account the complexity of all of their actions. So this is an interesting curatorial undertaking by a group of curators who work together. So um, I think there are five Inuit curators altogether. So they work together on this project to see it through from beginning to end. They worked with the artists, they decided how to display things. And the fact that it had this kind of incredible opening that was watched by tens of thousands of people, I think, online, people tuned into the opening, is I would not use the word reconciliation because I think it's coming from a perspective where this was created by Inuit people for Inuit people, but is accessible to all, which seems different from the way that reconciliation tends to be imagined from a settler Canadian perspective. So they seem different to me, but ultimately part of the same very complex and complicated way that museums exist in the current moment. Yeah, it's just reinforcing how important museums are to everyday culture and our lives and understanding ourselves and others. If someone's listening and they haven't been to a museum in a very long time, what do you recommend? What's the first step to getting back into thinking about museums and their collections? Oh, that's an interesting question. So first of all, I think museums are very different from what they were like 10 or even five years ago. But let's say people might have this idea that museums are very quiet spaces where you're not supposed to talk and you have to behave in a certain way. I would say that's not the case at all anymore. Museums can be very loud spaces full of laughter and people talking and so on. 
I would also suggest taking advantage of some of the programming that's going on. So museums are really good at making collections accessible to different kinds of people. So if you have kids, there might be some certain things that are aimed at kids. If you have an elderly relative who might want to go to a museum, there could be a time when it's quieter, when there's more space to move around and so on and so forth. I think museums have changed greatly in terms of their ability to accommodate and to think about what different people might want from the collections, but also that people don't stop questioning what it is they're looking at and how museums might continue to improve and to think about their histories and their futures. That's great. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Kirsty Robertson, the Director of Museum and Curatorial Studies at Western University. And that's all for this episode of Unsettling Trends. This episode featured interviews with Melissa Bowman and Kirsty Robertson, as well as a segment from Amy Smoke at Landback Camp. We really focused on how our cultural institutions and our communities are shifting and finding ways to unsettle some of the dominant ways of knowing and participating in public life in our communities. Next week, we're going to dive into polarization, probably one of the biggest unsettling trends that we're fixated on these days. I hope you'll join me then. Unsettling Trends is produced by myself, Danielle DeVoe, research and production assistance from Madison Taylor, and our theme music is from Alexander Boudreau. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at Pop Culture Lab, and you can find out more about Midtown Radio at midtownradio.ca.